If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to be looking at verses 34 through 46. If you don't have a Bible, you can, one of these should be on the pew in front of you, the pew back in front of you, and it'll be on page 828. Again, you, you've probably heard me say this before, but if, if you don't have a Bible, this is, this is free for you to take and use. We live in a country where access to God's Word is, is readily available, and you have no excuse not to have a copy, and so we want to provide that for you if you need it. And we'll read from that passage here in just a minute. But just a, a bit of an overview as we come to the end of this section, this specific section, Matthew's Gospel, has been a section where the opponents of Jesus have, have attempted to trap him or test him with questions, and it's been a series of questions. And in Matthew's Gospel, this comes at the end. Jesus has come to Jerusalem the final time. We're in the midst of, of Holy Week or Passion Week, where the end of this week will culminate with the crucifixion of Jesus. We'll, we'll see in Matthew's Gospel the the institution of the Passover, what we just, we just observed here, and we'll see him on trial, we'll see his crucifixion, we'll see his burial, we'll see his resurrection, but we're coming to the end of it, and in this section, after these questions, we, we come to chapter 23, which is where Jesus will, will, will issue the, this pronouncement of woes. All of chapter 23 are these pronouncements of woes against the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And then chapter 24 and 25 is the last discourse of Matthew's gospel where Jesus will, it's called the Olivet Discourse, and it's all about the end times. It's about what happens at the end. And you'll want to be here for that because there's, there's a lot of discussion around what's happening at the end. And so we'll look at what Jesus has to say, both about the end of the temple and the end of time. And then chapters 26, 27, 28, it'll be a rapid going through the events of the Passion Week and the culmination of, or the, the, the end of the Gospel of Matthew will be the Great Commission. And we will, Lord willing, finish our study through the Gospel of Matthew in December. So stay with us. That's our plan, um, Lord willing. So we'll see. So that's where we are. Um, but next week, just so you know, next week we're going to spend one, maybe two, we'll see, at least one week, maybe two weeks, looking at the biblical office of deacons. So a as a church family, at this time, this point in the life of our church, the elders, we think it's, it's helpful, the, the best place for us to devote time, um, a sermon to the, the issue of deacons. Is, is now. And so we're going to preach one, maybe two sermons on deacons. And the main point is to ensure that we're all on the same page as we move forward with, with the, the, the submitting of nominees and, and deacon training, and then finally, Lord willing, having deacons, more deacons serve the body. So that's going to be next week and the following week we'll be looking at the office of deacon. So please, if you're a member here, please make plans to be here if you're able. So Matthew chapter 22, I'm, I'm ready to, to read our passage. So Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to read verses 34 through 46. So you can follow along as I read Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34. Matthew writes this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him, that's Jesus, a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And Jesus said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand while I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Well, let's, um, let's pray as we look at this passage. Father, this is your word. Spirit, you have inspired Matthew to write this, your word. And so we know that there is profit for us. There's instruction for us. There's correction for us. There's rebuke for us in this, your word. And so, Spirit, we pray you'd open the eyes of our hearts to behold wonders here in this, your word. Help us to learn the purpose of the law and the responsibility of your people, and also help us to to grow in our love and knowledge of the identity of the Messiah, of the Christ, whose words we are reading here. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, there, there's two points here. There's two sections that we'll work through. First, there in verses 34 through 40, we'll see a final question. A final questions. A final question, verses 34 through 40. Then second, we'll see one more question, verses 41 through 46. So the final question, and then one more question. We'll see there's a different asker of the questions, and that's why there's, there's one more, one last one that, that kind of ends the entire interaction of questions. And so we start there with a final question there, verses 34 through 40. And so as I said, this section comes to a close, and in, as this section closes, there's one final question from the religious leaders to Jesus. And, and once again, there's this, this unholy alliance between these groups, all aimed at trapping or discrediting Jesus. And so just if you just look up in chapter 22, in verse 15, the Pharisees go and they plot how to entangle Jesus in his words, and they ask him a question about paying taxes, a political question. Then last week you saw in verse 23, the Sadducees, a different group who don't get along with the Pharisees, they come to him and ask him about the resurrection. Even though they don't believe in the resurrection, they want to know, ask Jesus about the resurrection, and their whole point is to show the folly of believing in life after death. And in both instances, the Pharisees the first time, then the Sadducees, Jesus confounds them. He doesn't ignore their questions. He doesn't sidestep their questions. He responds with the truth, and they have no rebuttal. But instead, they're forced to leave until an opportune time arises. And so here in verse 34, look there at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So once again, this is round two for the Pharisees. So the Pharisees ask a question, they, they can't respond to him, so they leave. And then the Sadducees say, now here's our chance. Well, the Sadducees fail, and so now the, the Sadducees have been silenced, and the Pharisees say, okay, here's our, our, our chance again. And instead of a political question, which they asked the first time, they ask a question about the law. So look there at verse 35, look at their question. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 
Now again, we're not left wondering the motives behind this question. Mark's account kind of, kind of gives, may, maybe, maybe the motives of this asker are, are not totally um, disingenuous, or, or maybe he doesn't, he's, not, he's not totally against trapping Jesus, but Matthew doesn't leave that, that question up in the air. Matthew says this question was to test him. The intent is to, to test him. This is not an academic debate. And so the lawyer is the one who comes forward representing the whole group to ask this question. And so this lawyer, what, don't, don't, don't think uh, lawyer in terms of an American courtroom, but this is a lawyer in terms of an expert in the Mosaic law. He was the one who was most well studied in the law of Moses in these first five books. The one who would almost have certainly memorized all 613 of Moses' commandments. And so this lawyer comes forward and he asks, which is the great commandment in the law? That seems like a simple question, but if you consider how many laws were in the law of Moses, it's not so simple. There's 613. It's not like, hey, there's two options. What's, what's the greatest? There's, there's this, whole, uh, this whole area where, where laws are contained in Moses. And while all of them were certainly given by God and important for God's people, the nature of pharisaical debate, the scholarly debate in this day, were, were centered around how do you know what laws are more important than others? You, you have to learn to know, and you have to understand, well, how am I going to discern which laws are more important than others? And, and they would specifically use terms heavy and light. Well, what are the heavier laws? Which, which should we give more weight to? And which, which, which laws are lighter? And so that, that's part of the, what's, what's, what's going on behind this question. And so I thought, you know, boys and girls, if, if, if you're at home and your parents give you a list of things to do, you should do all of them. Hear me say that. You should do all of them. However, part of the process of obeying is you're deciding, well, well which should take priority? What, what, what does my mom or my dad, what, what is the most important to them? I want to make sure and do that first as I work through the list. You're making judgments regarding the commands that you've been given. And, and I think that's kind of like what the Pharisees often debated about. What, what's the most important? What is the greatest? That's the question. What is the greatest? And they believed that the Pharisees, there were a few schools of thought, and, and, and they all had the right answer. They, they knew this is the greatest. And so they asked the question to Jesus, and they're going to force him to put his cards on the table. He's forced to either agree with, yeah, I agree with these, these Pharisees or these Pharisees. I agree with this school of thought. Or he's going to alienate himself completely from the Pharisees, which is what he's made a habit of doing. And, and so it's forcing him to, to, to reveal his thinking about the law. In fact, if in his answer Jesus differed radically from, from mainstream orthodoxy, Jewish orthodoxy, this question would reveal it. And they could say, look, he doesn't know the law. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You, you don't need to follow him. And so, so that's kind of the, the, the intent behind the question. You know, if you were to ask Pastor Will, what is the best Star Wars movie, your answer would tell him a lot about you. Because he knows what you say, how you answer that question would, would reveal a lot about you. Or if, if I ask you, who is the best basketball player of all time, your answer would reveal a lot about who you are, the time you grew up, and a lot of things like that. And so I think they're asking the question because it's going to reveal a lot behind who Jesus is and what he believes. And so they ask that question. And not, not forgetting, back in chapter 5, remember Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So, so at, at some point in his ministry, people are charging him with abolishing the law, which this, this would be an opportunity for him to, to, to be put on, forced to answer that question. So here they are, gathering on Jesus. 
They ask a question, what's the greatest command? Look how he responds, verse 37. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, verse 39. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. So there, there's two commands he gives, right? And, and because we, as, as Christians, have read and are familiar with the rest of the New Testament and the other gospel accounts, these two commandments, love God and love others, they're not, they're not new or unique to us. But we have to remember that this answer by Jesus is the reason they're familiar to us, because this answer establishes the permanent role of these two commands in understanding the entire law. And so what Jesus is doing is astounding, Because the Pharisees would have had some passages or verses they'd go to as the greatest, but what Jesus does is he takes two familiar commands from the law of Moses, nowhere else, from the law of Moses, the first five books, and not only summarizes the law with these two, but he says that these two commands are the foundation of the law and the prophets, which is simply to say these summarize the entire Old Testament. The law and the prophets, all of it are summarized in these two simple commands. And so notice what he does. First, he takes the commandment given in Deuteronomy 6. Now, that's how he answers the first question. You've probably heard before Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might. This, is, this, is, this would have been familiar to the Jews. They would have memorized this. In fact, it was, it was all over. It was on their doorposts. They had it in their phylacteries, these little boxes, and they'd have it inscribed on that, so they'd always remember it. They'd recite it, in fact, twice a day. They'd have been teaching it to their kids. This was well known by all the Jews. And so Jesus takes that, what what they've known, and he says, this is the greatest commandment. And he quotes from this passage. And it's a simple command. God's people are to love him with all your heart and soul and might is what Jesus says as he quotes Deuteronomy 6. And that's not to say there's three separate uh, commands to obey. So, okay, I got to love with my heart and then my soul with all my might. No, this is just used referring all three of these terms to the same thing, the, the, the totality of your being. You're to love God with all of you. All of you. God's people are to love God with all they are, with their entire being. Now, that's what he's conveying here. That's the point of this command. So Jesus says this is the first and greatest commandment, which is to say the greatest responsibility for anyone is to love God. This is to be the motivating principle for everything that you think, do, or say. This is the duty of all people, to love God with all of you. In fact, if you're here, you haven't heard this before. That's why you were created. You're created to love God with your whole being. It should go without saying, but this, this is the correct answer to the question. This is the right answer. There's no greater commandment than that. And so Jesus answers their question. He clearly gives them the answer, but he doesn't stop, does he, with answering their question. Even though the love of God is expressed in Deuteronomy 6, rightly takes first place, Jesus goes beyond the scope of their question. And he asserts that a second command must be placed alongside of it. So he continues, verse 39, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we can't misunderstand Jesus. The first is first and second is second, right? So so there's there's not an equal here. The first is still the first and the second is the second, but he says the second is like it. 
And what's like it is that it's, it's, they're, they're interdependent. You can't have one without the other. That's why I think he adds this second one. And so the second greatest commandment is like it in that, notice the wording is almost identical. First, love the Lord your God. Second, love your neighbor. So, so they're like in, in the fact that they're both called to, to love something external to yourself. But the second one doesn't come from Deuteronomy 6. Well, it comes from the law of Moses. It's not Deuteronomy. It's from Leviticus 19, specifically verse 18. But, but in this section of Leviticus 19, this entire section is focused on loving your neighbor. And, and he ends the section, Leviticus 19, verse 18, with loving your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus adds the second. And, and so I, I just wonder, why would Jesus go beyond the scope of the question? Why would he add the second great commandment? Now we know it again because we have the rest of the New Testament. But here in this conversation, Jesus is clearly outlining the extent of responsibility for those who claim to be God's people. And think about the Pharisees. They were not too keen on recognizing their command to love others. And so he's saying, yeah, you, you say you love God. Well, there's a second that goes with it, and that's loving others. And the Pharisees were not good at that. In fact, they were good at the opposite. And so Jesus, by adding the second command, he, he's insisting that one's religious duty is focused completely outside of oneself. It's not focused on self. It's not love yourself, right? That's what our world would say. Hey, just love yourself and don't worry about others. Jesus would say the exact opposite. By loving others and loving God is how you care for yourself because that's what you're created to do. And so Jesus making clear that the people of God are to be known by their love, both by their love for God and their love for others. And the implicit point that Jesus makes here is that to obey the greatest commandment requires or necessitates obeying the second greatest commandment, which simply means that a love for God expresses itself in a love for neighbor. And again, we know this. The Apostle John, who, who was most likely standing here with Jesus during this conversation, taught in his first letter. Listen to what the Apostle John says in 1 John 4. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so John takes this even further and says, if you don't love God, or if you don't love others, it doesn't mean you don't love God. If you don't love others, it means you don't know God. So, so if you claim to love God but have not love for others, you, you don't love God. I mean, that's, that's the interconnectedness of these two commands. I think that's, this is what Jesus, the point he's making here. These two commands are inseparable. They belong together. And so he, he lays them out, but he doesn't simply say, hey, these are the, the two greatest commandments in the law of Moses. He says, verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is foundational for understanding not only the entire Old Testament, but the entire scriptures, not only the, the, the law of Moses, but all of the scriptures. And these categories are really helpful. So now we can look back and just think about the Ten Commandments. A helpful way to, to memorize or think about the Ten Commandments is in these two categories. In fact, it's often theological, in theological discussions, it's known as the two tables of the law. And think about the two tables. There's loving God, commandments one through four, loving others, commandments five through ten. That, that, that summarizes the law, love God and love others. No other God before me, no idols, don't take my name in vain, keep the Sabbath holy, all God-related. 
5 through 10, all others related. Honor father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. That's all relationship between one another. And so Jesus says the entire law is summarized in these two commands, to love God and to love others. And so they're comprehensive, right? You can't just go do this and say, I, I, I kept the law, now I've done my duty. These are comprehensive. These affect everything that you do every day. And they, they, they're suitable for summarizing the law. This is what God calls his people to do. Well, I think, I think we, we certainly can apply here the call to love, as we move away from this first section, the application point is the call to love. We aim to obey these commandments. And so we are called to love. But, but let me, one, one very important clarification in our endeavor to love God and love others, in our endeavor to, to obey these two commands, we must recognize that these commands are impossible to keep for the natural man. Right? We are born in sin, and as sinners, we have reason to be afraid of God. We can't love him by nature because we are, we are sinners by nature, so we're born in sin. And so we can't just say, well, I'm going to love you, God, because we're his enemies because of our sin. So, so we can't approach him and expect him to be favorable to us. So, so, so that's a big problem with loving God. And then loving others, again, our sin nature, we're born selfish, hateful, hating one another. That that's our nature. I mean, Titus chapter 3, verse 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. And listen to what he says, hated by others and hating one another. That is the natural man. If you're here and you have not, if you're not put your faith in Jesus, that's who you are. You can't love God and you can't love others. Your sin prevents you. You are a slave to your sin. And so these commands, though simple, though comprehensive, you must not misunderstand. Don't walk away from this sermon and miss the point. The point of the law is to show you that you can't do it. So don't walk away from here thinking, okay, if I want to honor God, I just got to love him and love others. It's impossible. You can't do it. That's not the point of the law. The purpose of the entire law it's to show us both God's holiness, his standard, but also our sin and our need for a Savior. That's the purpose. To show us what God requires, love for him and love others, that's the standard. We are called to do that. That's why we're created. God will accept nothing less, but the law also shows our inability. It shows us our sin so that even these two simple commands cannot be kept by us in our natural state. Therefore, first we have to recognize in our endeavor to apply these verses, our obedience, our labor to love God and love others must be a, 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 a responsive endeavor. We must love God and love others responsive to something. We must love after having love produced in us by something other than our own willpower. Which, again, the Apostle John would say, we love because he first loved. There must be a preceding love that motivates our love. We can never really love God until we're at peace with him through Christ. And we, we can never love our fellow man until our hearts are changed by the work of God. 
And so hear me say, if you're here this morning and you're, you're not a Christian, your, your faith isn't in Jesus, your relationship to God and others will only ever be a curse to you until you are reconciled to God through faith in his son. Your relationship to God and others can only be a source of blessing and satisfaction and enjoyment when you are first reconciled to God, given peace with God through faith in the Son. You can only pursue these commands when you've been given new life through faith in Christ. That is the way to keep these commands. And so non-Christian, hear me say, the law-keeping as means of maintaining a relationship with God, misses the entire point and will only end in failure and disappointment. So so maybe, maybe you've never heard this. Christianity is not a bootstrap religion. So so it's not as though Christianity has this standard that if if you're good enough, you try hard enough, you're disciplined enough, that you can can climb the mountain and reach the, 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 the bar on your own. It's not a bootstrap religion. We don't say try harder. Read some more self-help books. Get better habits. That isn't the way to life. That's not the way of the gospel. We say, abandon all hope in yourself. Forsake all righteousness that comes from your own, on your own. Cast yourself fully on the mercy of Christ. That, that's Christianity. No hope in yourself. None. All you have is Christ. All you need is Christ, but all you have is Christ. So abandon hope and self and put your faith in Christ. That's the gospel. That's Christianity. And so don't leave this, this sanctuary thinking, okay, the two greatest commandments. If I want to please God, if I want to write relationship with God, I just got to try and love him and love others. That's not the gospel. That's every other religion. The gospel says you can't do it, but Jesus came to do it for you. Look to him, the perfect law keeper. Put your faith in him and believe that his life and death are enough for you. And that his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead are capable of securing and guaranteeing your peace with God. And then, in response, you have new life. You've been born again by the Spirit. You've been given new life, eternal life that starts now. Then you go. And it's not you, you die to self and to live as Christ and you love others and you love God with your life. That, that's the point. J.C. Rowell said, we must have roots before we have fruits. You, you can't just have fruits and say, I'm going to love God and love others. You have to have roots. You have to have faith in Christ, a, a deep abiding joy in him and faith in him that then produces fruits. And so hear that non-Christian Second thing to note, for those who have put their faith in Christ, who have had their sins forgiven and have peace with God, those who truly know the love of God that's been shown in Christ, for you the application is quite different. Because you've, you've, you've received justification through faith in Christ. You've, you've been born again. You have new life. And now your aim is to obey your Father. And so when you hear these commands, you hear them differently than the non-Christian. You hear the call of your father to you, his son or daughter. Love me and love others. This is why I sent my son, to give you new life and to give you joy in loving me and others. And so for the Christian, for me at least, the enemy of my love for God and love others is is not very difficult to discern. For me, love of self is almost always the enemy of love of God and love of others. It's, it's my old self. 
It's my sinful nature. The main problem for me in obeying these two simple commands is my old self. That the old man that wages war against my new self. That the old man, that the sinful flesh that seeks to control and say, no, 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 don't sacrifice for the good of another. Don't be, don't be discomfortable because of your relationship with the Lord. And so for the Christian, the call is to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to put off the old and put on the new. To recognize the blessing that comes from loving God and love, loving others. It comes from following Christ who came to serve and not to be served. And so in, in seeking to apply this, I would simply call you to consider how are you loving others? The call for you is to love others. And others is others. Jesus would, would even clarify others includes your enemies. And so how are we doing? How are you doing in loving others? Others would include your spouse. And so spouse, how are you doing loving your other? Husband, how are you doing loving your wife? Others would include your children. So parents, how are you doing loving your children? Do you remember 1 Corinthians 15, love is patient, love is kind. Parents, how are you loving others? Others would include your coworkers. How are you doing loving those you share office space with? You're on projects with. How are you doing loving those difficult, lazy workers? How are you loving them? Others include your neighbors. Even those whose trees are going to be dropping hundreds of thousands of leaves in a few months. Others includes your neighbors. How are you doing loving them? Others would include other Americans, other citizens of, of this earthly country. Those you disagree with politically. How are you doing loving them? You can say you love them, but, but what does your heart say? How are you loving them? It, it includes those different than you, racially, economically. How are you doing loving others? Others includes members of the body of Christ, fellow Christians. How are you doing loving the members of this church? When you have a problem with another member, are you going and addressing it with them? How are you loving them? Are you talking about them behind their back and, and not even giving them the courtesy of, of addressing it with them? How are you doing loving others? The list could go on. It's right for us to simply ask, how are we doing? Are, are you a loving person? Are you a loving person? Ask yourself that. Then ask those around you. Would you define me as a loving person? How are we doing? This passage tells us that our purpose in life, the reason we've been born again, is to love God and love others. And we ought not to be afraid to take an honest look in the mirror. And then, if you're discouraged, which you should be in light of considering, have you loved others perfectly? You have not. So you ought to be aware of, I failed this week. That's okay. It's okay to feel discouraged. The, the solution, what's not okay, is to stay there. What's, the solution is to then repent confess and say, Lord, I failed to love others as I ought this week. Would you help me to do better? Help me to trust you. Help me to die to self more. And then to obey. Repent and obey. That, that's what the Christian does from start to finish of the Christian life. And so let us endeavor to do that. Well, moving quickly, this last section is much quicker but there's one more question, but this time it's not from the opponents to Jesus, it's from Jesus to the opponents. 
And so Jesus has received all their questions, and now he is going to ask them a question. And the reason he asks them this question is because the way they've been trying to trap him shows they don't know who he is. If they knew who he was, they wouldn't be asking him, trying to trap him. Because if they knew who he was, they'd recognize, you're the author of all of this. We can't trap you. And so the way that they answer this final question ought to change the way they see Jesus. It ought to to, to change the way that they, they respond to what he's come to say and do. So look at the one more question, verse 41 there. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. And so he says, verse 42, what do you think about the Christ? That's the the Messiah, the promised one. That's the word here, the the anointed one. Who is he? Jesus says, what do you think about him, the Messiah? Who is he? Specifically, Jesus says, whose son is he? Who's the one that's going to save Israel? Who is he? Whose son is he? Now we know Right, the connection between the Messiah, the promised one, and the son of David, right, we know because we've been in Matthew's gospel that, in fact, the very first verse of this gospel, Matthew says, hey, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we know the answer that Jesus is the Christ and the son of David, both two in one person. We know that because we've been reading the gospel. The Pharisees don't know that. They don't know that, so he asked he asks them this question to make sure that they recognize that they're thinking wrongly about the Messiah that they're anticipating. So he asks the question, whose son is he? And they answer the way that Jesus knew there would. He is the son of David. Which then, so that's, that's he knew they'd say that. Then he responds, verse 43, okay, you, you answered that way. I knew you would. Here's a question for you, Pharisees. How is it then that David in the Spirit, calls him. Now that him is the Christ, the Messiah, how is it that David calls the Messiah Lord? Saying, quote, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, first just note what Jesus does here in verse 43. How is it that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, and then David quotes Psalm 110. Now, Jesus says that David spoke in the Spirit, which is significant, not just for the sake of Jesus' argument, but for understanding what we have in the Scriptures. David spoke. He wrote Psalm 110. There would be no doubt about that among the Pharisees, but Jesus says David spoke in the Spirit, which means, as as Peter would say, that David was one of the men who spoke from God as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. David spoke, but it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that it could be said that the Spirit said this. He inspired David to write this. And so Jesus, I mean, that, that's significant. Think about that this week. But, but Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, a psalm of David, which is often quoted in the New Testament. But Jesus quotes from Psalm 110 because the psalm was not only a well-known psalm of David, but it was a clear messianic psalm. It's about the Messiah. And so it's pointing to, it's a prophetic psalm that pointed to the promise of the Messiah, the Savior coming. And so Jesus asked the question he did because the Pharisees knew Psalm 110 and they knew that the Messiah was going to be David's son. But the problem is they didn't know the psalm well enough because Jesus points out the very first verse of Psalm 110, the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, this is David speaking, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So that's what Jesus, that's the, that's, that's the tension Jesus pinpoints. Here's David writing the psalm, and David, King David, the, the father of the promised Messiah, refers to the promised Messiah, the Lord said to my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. So David says the promised Messiah is my Lord, and that's what Jesus says. So if David's the author of Psalm 110, why would he refer to anyone as his Lord? He's the king of Israel. Why would he refer to someone as higher than him unless it was Yahweh himself? So he says, the Lord said to my Lord. So there's one superior than David, and it's the Christ. And so Jesus says, verse 45, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? I don't go around calling my son my Lord. That's just weird. That's not how authority works. And that's what Jesus picks up on. Now, to be clear, Jesus was David's son. The Pharisees weren't wrong in assuming that. But their understanding of the Messiah was was lacking. It was incomplete. And Jesus wants them to see from Psalm 110 that while, yes, the Messiah is the son of David, the Messiah was also the Lord of David. That's his point. Both aspects of the identity of the Messiah was necessary. He wasn't simply a human Messiah. He wasn't simply the son of David. He was much more. He was the Lord. And this is why Psalm 110 is going to be the most quoted, commonly used Old Testament proof text for the divinity of Christ. So Acts chapter 2, Peter uses this verse at Pentecost to show that Jesus was the Messiah. This one that you crucified has been made both Lord and Christ, Peter would say. Author of Hebrews chapter 1 uses this to show the superiority of Jesus over the angels. Quote Psalm 110. And so the point that Jesus makes in quoting this would have been to show them their error. They have no way to respond. He shows them from their text that David called the Messiah Lord. In verse 46, amusingly, Matthew records, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. They've given up. They can't do it. Strike three, they're, they're out. They're going to they're gonna disappear. They're not going to pursue this route anymore. In fact, they're just going to go straight for him and crucify him unlawfully. That's how they're going to eliminate him. But at this point, they leave and they go away. And that ends this section. And so the only point of application from this last section is simply recognizing the identity of Christ. The point that Jesus makes here at the end of of his public ministry, Matthew's gospel, it's easy to recognize In fact, he doesn't even have to make this point explicitly because he doesn't have to. When he asks this question and silences his opponents, they know exactly what he's claiming. This is what's going to fast forward the the mechanism to get him crucified. He's claiming not only is their understanding of the identity of the Messiah deficient, that is what he's saying. You don't understand, you don't know who the Messiah is. But he's also, in doing that, he's claiming, I am the one. I am the promised Christ. This is one of the climactic points in Matthew's Christology. This is one of the places that Matthew says, I just want my readers to know that he, Jesus, is the promised Christ. He is David's son and David's Lord. And so we simply ponder the identity of Christ. And we ought to leave this passage with the highest thoughts of the person and work of Christ. He is David's son, yes, but he is David's Lord, fully man and fully God who came, was sent by the Father to accomplish a mission to save his people, to bring the kingdom. 
And so we as his people, as, as we recognize and wrap our minds around this identity, we, we hear him and listen to him differently than the Pharisees. The way we think about him is different. In fact, it is not wrong for us to worship him and to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray as we close.